0: There in 3.14 that Paul restarts by repeating the phrase for this reason. And then he continues saying, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named and so on and so forth. And so in 3.14 through 19, Paul finishes the thought that he began in 3.1. And that is why I have said that verses 2 through 13 of Ephesians 3 are a digression Paul here goes on a bit of a tangent, if you will, to address something other than what was on his mind at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 3. But of course, this is intentional, and what Paul addresses here in this digression is very important. And so why did Paul digress? Why would he choose to go on this tangent, as I have called it? Well, previously in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul used very elevated language to describe the power and authority that now belongs to Christ and to the many heavenly and spiritual blessings that are ours in him. I'm sure you remember all of that beautiful language that Paul used to describe this. For example, in 118, Paul reported to pray for the believers in Christ, that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which he has called them, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. That is Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. And so Paul attributed the highest possible power to Christ. And he taught that this tremendous power results in tremendous blessing for the believer. We are rich in Christ our inheritance is glorious. God's power is immeasurably great in Christ towards those who believe. And yet, and I want you to pay careful attention to this, Paul was in prison. He begins in one, saying, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner. Paul was in prison. He was suffering under the Romans at this time as he wrote this Epistle, And the question is, I think, how are the Ephesians to think about that? And how are we to think about that? Paul, the one who taught that his Lord and Savior was above all rule and authority and power and dominion. The one who claimed to be blessed along with the Ephesians with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This Paul was in prison as he wrote his letter to the Ephesians. He was under the thumb of Rome. In fact, he would soon be put to death by them. Paul, who claimed to be richly and eternally blessed in Christ, suffered greatly, therefore. And what are we to think about that? What are we to think about this apparent inconsistency? Had God abandoned Paul? Were Paul's claims to apostolic authority invalid because of what he was experiencing? Was he wrong about being so richly blessed in Christ? Was he wrong about Christ's supreme authority? After all, if Christ has this supreme authority, then how could he possibly allow his servants to suffer in this way? And these are the questions that might come to mind when we watch those who love God and serve him suffer in this world. And these I think, are the reason for Paul's digression. I'm not saying that he addresses each one of these questions directly, but what he says here in this passage does help us to understand, and it should bring encouragement to our hearts, concerning Paul's suffering, concerning ours, concerning the suffering of all who are in Christ Jesus, who serve our God faithfully in this world. In fact, that is Paul's stated goal. If you would look briefly uh, with me at the end of this digression, in verse 13, Paul concludes saying, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And so the purpose for this digression is to encourage the Ephesians and us by way of extension to not lose heart in the face of suffering, the suffering of others who love Christ or even our own. And so I would ask you to notice three things about the perspective that Paul had concerning his imprisonment that is revealed here in this passage. One, let us consider that Paul referred to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That is an interesting way for Paul to put it, don't you think? Paul referred to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why didn't Paul say, Paul, a prisoner of Christ? Rome, or Paul, a prisoner of Caesar, why didn't he put the blame at their feet and draw attention to the injustices that he was suffering at their hands? Instead, he claimed to be a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And we might ask well, in what sense was Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus? One, Paul was a prisoner of Christ Jesus because he was a prisoner on account of his devotion to Christ. He was in prison, not because he committed some crime, but because he was a faithful servant of Christ and a minister of the gospel. Paul labored in his ministry to be a good citizen and to never unnecessarily offend, but he was in prison because he was faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is inherently offensive to those who are perishing. Two, Paul was a prisoner of Christ Jesus because his imprisonment was according to the will of God for him in Christ. Though it was Rome who imprisoned, even this was according to the eternal decree of God. This was Paul's perspective. God willingly permitted this imprisonment for a purpose. What was that purpose, we might ask? Well, only God really knows. But Paul knew that God was sovereign even over his unjust treatment and that God would work all things for good. And in this sense, Paul was a prisoner Of Christ Jesus. Three, Paul was a prisoner of Christ Jesus for he continued to serve Christ even in his suffering. Uh, This letter, I think, is a testament to this fact. Prison did not separate Paul from Christ, prison did not nullify Paul's calling. He ministered to those around him while in prison, he even ministered to the churches that he had planted many years before through his writings. And perhaps you have noticed that when Christians suffer in the world, the tendency of some is to separate or distance God and Christ from the suffering that is being experienced. Our thinking often goes in this direction. Well, yes, Brother Paul is in prison, but this is Rome's fault. This is unjust. This is contrary to the will of God. God is not in this, therefore. And while there is some truth to these statements, while there are kernels of truth in them, I want for you to notice that Paul emphasized something else. Instead of distancing God and Christ from his sufferings and the injustice that he was experiencing, he actually made a conscious effort to bring them near and to say quite directly, I, Paul, am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, this should be our perspective. Whenever we suffer in this world, we should remember that God and Christ are near to us in our suffering. In other words, in this world, we do suffer according to the will of God. God is near to us in Christ Jesus. When we suffer, we suffer for a purpose, though that purpose may remain hidden from us in this life. Secondly, let us consider the fact that Paul referred to himself as a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. Again, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I will not spend much time on this point, Um, but we might ask, why does Paul say this? Is it to guilt the Ephesians? I'm in prison because of you. Is that what he is saying? And the answer is, of course not. Rather, Paul is reminding them of his love for them. He is reminding them also that it was his ministry to the Gentiles that landed him in prison. Ultimately, both Jews and Gentiles grew irritated with Paul, but for different reasons. Many of the Jews despised Paul because he preached that the Gentiles were to be engrafted into Israel, that circumcision was ultimately nothing, and that the church was the true temple, being constructed of Jews and Gentiles together with Christ, his apostles and prophets as the foundation, among other things. All of this was offensive to many of the Jews. But the Gentiles hated Paul because as he preached Christ, he turned men and women away from their gods and from the worldly philosophy which governed their lives. He was a major disruption, therefore, to their culture and even to their livelihoods. Paul was put in prison because he disturbed, in one way or another, both Jews and Gentiles. And nevertheless, Paul persisted in his ministry, even to the point of chains and even to the point of shedding his own blood. Remember what he wrote to Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, Paul said to Timothy, that young pastor, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they might also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so I do wonder, brothers and sisters, what are we willing to endure for the sake of the elect? Are we willing to persevere in the proclamation of the gospel, even if the prevailing culture finds it offensive and is moved even to persecute? I would hope so. There is nothing more important than the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. For as Romans 1.16 says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Indeed, there is salvation in no one but Jesus Christ, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is Acts 4.12. Our love for God and our love for neighbor must move the church to persist in the proclamation of the gospel, even in the face of persecution. We should remember that Paul was a prisoner on behalf of The Gentiles thirdly let us consider that Paul was a prisoner on account of the gospel that was entrusted to him and in verse 2 Paul reminds the Ephesians of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to him for them here Paul is calling them to remember the story of his conversion I think of his being received by the church in Antioch, of his being received by the apostles of Christ and how they themselves validated his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles. And that story can be read in the book of Acts, chapters 8 and following. But of interest here, I think, in Ephesians 3, 2, is that Paul refers to himself as a steward of God's grace. A steward is a servant, or better yet, yet, a manager of someone else's possessions, And this is how Paul regarded himself. He says so directly in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and following. This is how one should regard us, speaking of the apostles, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. The apostles of Christ viewed themselves as servants of Christ and stewards or managers of the gospel. And this should be the way that every pastor views himself Above all we are servants and stewards. Pastors and elders are called to serve. They are to serve God and they are to serve the people of God. Yes, they are also called to lead and to rule well, but the church is the the, the elders are called to, to serve the church, uh, to teach and to preach uh, as servants uh, within Christ's Church. This is why they are called ministers, in fact. A minister is a servant. And they are stewards of the word of God. They are not called to be innovative or creative with God's word. Instead, they are to faithfully preserve, manage, and distribute the word of God that is entrusted to them. And there is a sense in which the whole church together has this stewardship as well. Not all are called to gospel ministry. Not all are gifted and called to serve as pastors, shepherds, evangelists, and teachers. But together, as the church, we are to maintain the gospel ministry. Uh, Together, we are to see to it that the gospel is put before the people of God in word and in sacrament. And that is proclaimed to those who do not yet believe. Furthermore, I think it is safe to say that all Christians have been entrusted with something. All are stewards in some way. The Lord has given gifts to all of his children, and he has given them some responsibilities in particular, some sphere of influence. May we all be found faithful servants of Christ in whatever station the Lord has called us to. But when Paul spoke of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to him, he was referring to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the gospel that was entrusted to Paul. Specifically, he was called to uh, preach it to the Gentiles did you notice that throughout this passage, Paul repeatedly refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ as a mystery? This should grab our attention. In verse 3, Paul says that this mystery was revealed to him. Undoubtedly, Paul is referring to his conversion and to his learning in the years that followed. And when he says that the mystery was revealed to him, he is saying, I received it, I did not invent it. And I think this is very significant. Paul did not invent his doctrine. Paul did not invent the Christian religion neither did any of the other apostles but they received the faith from Christ they received the faith from their spiritual forefathers who went before them in old covenant times he received the mystery he did not invent it In verse 4, Paul claims that the Ephesians will be able to perceive his insight into the mystery by reading what he has just written previously in this letter. Uh, Indeed, the previous sections of Ephesians do reveal that Paul understood the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 5, Paul says that this mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And this is why Paul refers to the gospel as a mystery. There was something veiled, hidden, and mysterious about it in ages past. But I want for you to pay careful attention to this. Paul most certainly does not say that the gospel was non-existent in previous generations, but only that it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit The gospel of Jesus Christ was certainly revealed prior to the birth of Christ through promises, prophecies, types, and shadows. But as we have discussed before, it was revealed dimly. But now that the Christ has lived, died, risen, and ascended, this same gospel has been revealed by the Spirit to Christ's apostles and prophets with tremendous clarity. I've spoken about this in previous sermons, and so I will not linger long on this point. But read the Gospel of Acts, the Gospels and, and Acts, to see the progression that the apostles of Christ experienced as it pertains to their understanding of the mysteries of Christ, his kingdom, and the gospel. Even Christ's closest disciples were somewhat perplexed until they saw him risen. The gospel was still mysterious to them, until Christ in his resurrection appeared to them and said, opened the eyes of his disciples to help them see with clarity uh, things that were once mysterious, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the kingdom was known in ages past, but it was dimly revealed, veiled and mysterious. But in particular, look now at 3.6 of Ephesians. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the thing that Paul says was most mysterious in ages past concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. And as I have said before, this was not unknown in ages past. Even to Abraham it was said, In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But that which was dimly revealed prior to the coming of Christ has been revealed with crystal-like clarity now that the Christ is risen and ascended. Again, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ, Jesus, through the gospel. And in verse 7, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul was appointed to serve as an apostle and especially as an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, verses 8 through 12 elaborate upon the revelation of this mystery. And I want for you to notice four things briefly. One, Paul was uniquely entrusted with the preaching of this gospel to the Gentiles. Paul was uniquely entrusted with the preaching of this gospel to the Gentiles. In verse 8 we read, To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. I, I want for you to notice here that Paul does not say that he is the least of the apostles, but he actually says that he is the least of the saints. And this word saints here is a reference to all of God's people. I actually believe that Paul meant what he said here. He is not here exaggerating. He is not here... Uh, just imploring humble speech, but he meant it, that he viewed himself as the least of the saints. He considered himself in this way, and after all, we are to remember that he did once persecute the church to the point of death, and God was truly gracious to save him and to appoint him to this office. Two, Paul says that this mystery was hidden for ages in God who created all things. What does it mean that this mystery was hidden in God? Here, Paul is teaching that this expansion of the kingdom of God amongst the Gentiles was not plan B in God's mind, but rather it was the original plan and intention of God being decreed from all eternity. And the reference to God as the creator of all things, I think, is also very significant. If God created all things, then should we not expect him to redeem all things in Christ? He is the creator of all people, should we not expect that he would redeem to himself, therefore, people from every nation and not the Jews only. Three, the revelation of this mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, is said to be so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This verse does deserve more attention than what we have time to give it this morning. But consider this. It is through the church that the multifaceted wisdom of God's plan of salvation is put on display. And consider also that One purpose for the redemption of the elect from every tongue, tribe, and nation is to put this wisdom on display, not only before men, but before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Here is a reference to spiritual powers. I think we should remember that Paul taught previously that before faith in Christ, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This was our condition prior to faith in Christ. And he also taught that the Gentile nations were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But through the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit, those who were once alienated from God have been brought near through faith in Christ. And here, Paul is teaching that this marvelous work reveals the manifold wisdom of God even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, this being a reference, again, to the spiritual powers, some of whom held the nations captive in darkness in ages past. For all of this is said to be according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This gospel, which was mysterious in ages past, but has now been clearly revealed, was according to the eternal purpose of God and accomplished through Christ Jesus. So what are we to think of Paul's imprisonment? And of the suffering experienced by all who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, one thing we cannot do when we think of these things is lose heart. And that is Paul's objective. He wants to broaden our perspective so that we might interpret the suffering that he himself was experiencing. And he does say once more in verse 13, So I ask you, Christians, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. In Paul's mind, suffering is a part of God's plan for the believer. In fact, he considered it a privilege to suffer for Christ. And I want for you to listen to his words in Colossians 1, through 29. And with this, we will close. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Paul says. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me let us bow for a word of prayer our father in heaven help us to have a heavenly mindset as we sojourn in this world help us to truly understand the glory of the gospel help us to understand how precious Christ is and may we as his people be willing to suffer anything for the sake of Christ for the sake of being faithful to him for the sake of proclaiming this marvelous gospel to all nations It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray. Amen.